So we're going to look at this passage, rather long passage, but from two simple perspectives. The nothing of the gospel and the everything of the gospel. The nothing of the gospel and the everything. Now, a little background. You see that Paul has traveled to Jerusalem and he has Titus and Barnabas with him. He has this vision to go up and visit with the apostles, the pillars of the church, those who had been around since the very early days. And he's been traveling around for 14 years sharing the good news that forgiveness is offered by God to anyone who will take hold of it, irrespective of their culture, of their prior obedience, of their fitness, but simply on the basis of Jesus alone. But wherever he's gone, he's had this group of men that has been following him around, undercutting his message, saying, yes, 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 we we all need Jesus, that's clear, but you also need this. You need to follow the Jewish law. You need to follow Jewish customs. You need to be circumcised. Jesus is the beginning. He's the entryway, but he's not everything. Now, before we laugh at this, how immature, how judgmental, how close-minded are these people? We all, each of us here, have circumstances where we reject people based upon superficial things, where we measure ourselves against external things, and we cast judgment even on ourselves, right? If you live in southeast Portland and your friends are hipsters, you probably don't want to mention to them that you just got a job at Nike. There's no ironic reason to work at Nike. They're going to look at you differently, right? When we moved into southeast Portland, we decided that in order to really fit in, in order to contextualize, what we needed was an SUV. (laughs) Well, there is a good reason for us buying an SUV. We're constantly carting around six or eight people, even to church this morning, eight people. So at least in our minds, we justified driving this uh, SUV because it's really a mass transit vehicle. But you'd be amazed at how many dirty looks that we get driving around southeast Portland in an SUV. Even the staff team gives me dirty looks. For 2,000 years, Paul, these guys are saying, we have been circumcised. Circumcision has been the way that God has marked out his people. You can't come around here talking about liberty and freedom of the gospel and expect us to just give it up and say anyone can get in. They don't have to adopt our customs. This is the Jewish faith after all. What are you saying, Paul? So Paul being the provocateur that he is, takes Titus, an uncircumcised Greek pagan, to meet these apostles. It's on. He is setting things up. And it's a provocation. We're going to deal with this issue once and for all. You say you're from James, Judaizers. You say you're from James and that everyone should be circumcised. Well, let's go talk to him. Let's see what he has to say about the matter. What Paul is doing is not trying to devalue these religious customs, not at all, but is arguing that with the, coming of the, with the coming of the Messiah, everything that they pointed to has been fulfilled. If you want to continue circumcision, if you want to continue the ceremonial clean laws, the kosher laws, fine, have at it. But it is not a way to Jesus. It is not necessary to come to faith. It is Jesus alone who makes you presentable. It is Jesus alone that makes you beautiful. It's Jesus alone that makes you worthy. And as soon as you see these things as necessary or anything like circumcision, as soon as you grab hold to anything external and say, this is why I'm approved, 
This is why I'm better than you. This is why I am able to stand before God. As soon as you do that, you don't simply add to the gospel, but you give it up altogether. You no longer have the nothing of the gospel, and you're dishonoring the very things that you say point you to God, the very things that you say make you spiritual. The gospel is the great equalizer. It says no one is worthy. Everyone has nothing. Admit it. No one is worthy. But Jesus has stepped into your world. Jesus has said, I will make you worthy. Admit your imperfection. Admit your nothingness. He makes you presentable, beautiful, worthy. The purpose of the ceremonial law, the purpose of all of those regulations, was not to set the Jewish people apart as being better so that they could look down upon all the pagans and all the unspiritual people, but they were to get them to see that they could not make themselves worthy, that they needed a Savior just like everyone else. Now, if you've ever started to read through the Bible, say, I'm going to start in Genesis and I'm going to read right to the end, you'd probably do quite well in Genesis, and then you do quite well through about half of Exodus, because there's lots of drama, lots of intrigue, there's lots of character development, and then you get to the end of Exodus, it starts talking about the tabernacle and all of the ways that you go in and set up the tabernacle and go out of the tabernacle and what you're supposed to do, and then you get to Leviticus and it gets even worse. There's these pages and pages, a litany of rules and regulations that are almost impenetrable. I can't even figure out what they mean. How could I possibly fulfill them? A.J. Jacobs wrote a book a few years back called The Year of Living uh, Biblically, where he tried to take on the whole Old Testament and say, I'm going to live like this for a year. And, of course, he's, it's, a, it's a farce, right? It's irony. You're showing that this is crazy. Who could do this? And he's right. Not that it's crazy, but who could do this? Who could keep all of these regulations, they were meant to point out the need for a Messiah, the need for a Savior. God was using the forms and practices that an ancient culture could understand, and he was explaining the need of the gospel. He was showing them that you cannot be fit for God on your own. You have to be holy. In order to come into the tabernacle, in order to come into the presence of God, you have to be holy. You have to be perfect. You have to be clean. And all of these laws, even if you kept them, are only dealing with superficiality, only dealing with the external, because you take your heart in there as well. You have to be holy. There's no way that all of these laws, whether they're the laws of religious regulation, whether they're the laws of the hipster, whether they're the laws of talk radio, whether they're the laws of the religious practitioner, They cannot make you fit for God, no matter how well you keep them. And as soon as you break one of the laws, you will judge yourself or your community will judge you, maybe even ostracize you. And that's the tragedy of self-righteousness. It said on one hand, it leads to superiority and judgmentalism, or it leads to inferiority and anxiety. When we do well, when we follow the rules of our community, our culture, our religious system, we feel superior. And we begin to look down at others, we begin to feel, we begin to judge them. And friends, you don't have to be an adherent to a traditional religion in order to be a Pharisee. 
Portland is a very secular city, and it's oftentimes very self-righteous, very judgmental, very pharisaical. When we do well in our self-righteous system, we feel superior, we feel judgmental. When we fail, when we lose ground, when we sense others have more qualifications than I do, others are doing better, we feel inferior and anxious. That's the tragedy, that both superiority and inferiority come from the very same place. It's an insecurity. We don't know our center, and we have this pendulum in our head and our heart that goes back and forth, back and forth, sometimes even on the same day. Wake up in the morning, you feel superior, go home and go to bed, and you feel anxious and inferior because you've had a terrible day and you haven't done enough. The gospel, friends, slices through all of that. It doesn't provide simply the middle ground. It doesn't simply bring the pendulum to the center, but it's another way entirely. God, who is entirely holy and perfect above all human law-keeping, is not impressed by our religious posturing. He's not impressed by our duty. No matter how well you follow the rules, no matter how well you you game the system. It will never make you worthy of his attention. But the gospel also says that the eternal judge has stepped down off the bench and has come to be your defendant. And he says, everything I am is theirs. Everything that I have is theirs. It belongs to them. Jesus, the Son of God, comes down and becomes your defendant. says, I am theirs. Father, when you look at them, see me. And he does. Jesus makes you presentable to the eternal judge who judges everyone without partiality. Though you are far, far more sinful than you could possibly know, you are far more deeply loved and approved than you could possibly imagine. That's the gospel. That's what happens when we begin to see our center as being the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not any of our religious posturing, not any of our performance, not any of the good work that we do in the city. But what makes us a church, what makes us significant, what makes us whole is the gospel. Paul is not saying that all these rules are pointless. What he's saying is they pointed to something else. And if you miss that, if you think that that's what makes you acceptable before God, you're dishonoring them, not just adding on, but missing the gospel altogether. Now, what does Paul say as he goes up to Jerusalem, this, you know, powerful missionary, this powerful uh, apostle? He says, I went with great fear and trembling. There was some hesitation going up there because he knows he's not just confronting a person, he's confronting a culture. He was confronting the way things are supposed to be. He was challenging a culture that saw the good things about their culture as being necessary for all cultures. Every culture, every nation, every community, every family has things that are laudable, things that are commendable, but they also have idols. They have certain things about them that they look to to make them feel approved of. We, were, we made friends with a, a restaurateur in our neighborhood, and um, Katie was talking to them the other night, and 
they were asking, well, you know, you're from Georgia. How did you get out to the, the West Coast, all the way out here to Portland? And she said, well, you know, we, we were kind of tired of the religious subculture in the Southeast. We were kind of tired of everything about the culture being baptized and made into Christianity and how many things, how many layers got stacked onto the gospel, onto kind of religion. And, you know, they were nodding their heads. Yeah, yeah, we get that. And then she said, but what's, what's funny is that my, my husband's a minister. And they were like, oh, really? That just did not compute to them. But they understood the religious subculture. One of them is actually from the South. But they understood how in every culture you pile things on. And these are the to-dos. This is the way things are. You get with the program or you get out. People who see things differently then are not valued for their perspective, but they are assimilated. You must be assimilated because you're a threat. Now, every city, including Portland, has its idols. But there's also a great spiritual benefit to living in a place like Portland, to living in the city. You can't really tell, oftentimes, if you truly get the gospel down deep until you begin to bump up with peop- against people on a, in a deep way, not a superficial way, but until you begin to interact with people who don't see the world the way you do, whose culture has less qualifications from your perspective than your culture does, whose obedience challenges, whose behavior challenges your idols, whose ideology is different from yours. Sometimes you don't realize that you're trusting in Jesus and something else and your upstanding behavior your social propriety, your cultural background, your education, your theological orthodoxy. You don't realize you're trusting in these things until you're forced to say to people who don't have those things, those are the people that God delights in. Those are the people that God dances for. Those are the people that God sent his son to the cross for. When you have to say that, when you have to give people who are very different from you equal standing, it lets you know whether you've fully assimilated the gospel, whether you fully understand it. Then you know also what Paul and Peter are wrestling with here. Some people understood the gospel, and some people didn't. James and Peter and John give him the right hand of fellowship, and it says they added nothing. They added nothing. The gospel that Paul had been taking to the Gentiles was exactly the same that James had been preaching in Jerusalem. But he had this group of people who left the church and were saying something entirely different. James says, yes, you get the gospel, Paul. Continue doing what you're doing. They added nothing to the gospel. But others put tremendous pressure upon Paul to award their cultural practices as necessary for the gospel, necessary for faith. You see, the issue is not circumcision. The issue is anything that's tacked on. The issue is Jesus plus nothing is the gospel. When we were in campus ministry, there was a lot of, a lot of lonely people on the campus. And a lot of our time was spent just counseling people who didn't have a real center, who were very lonely. 
And they were looking for that one relationship. In this case, in a Christian context, it was marriage. If I could just get married, then I'll be happy, I'll be whole, I'll be well, I'll be spiritually on my way. And there was this article that was circulating around uh, this campus ministry. And I'm sure it was uh, well-intended, but it basically said that once you're happy in God, once you're satisfied in Him alone, then I'll give you a spouse. Do you see, it's very subtle. It sounds quite right. Once you are happy in Jesus, then he'll bring some other things to you. But it's sinister. It's very sinister. What you need to do, the article says, in order to get my endorsement, to gain my favor, is to make yourself fit. Once you make yourself fit for my favor, then I will give it. And I'm withholding my blessing until you're worthy of it. It's slavery. And how enslaving that one article probably was to many college students who said, man, the reason I'm not married is because I'm a spiritual slacker. If I could just get with the program, if I could be a better Christian, then I would be blessed. You've got to to save yourself from your dissatisfaction. You've got to ratchet up your satisfaction in God, and then he will bless you. I remember early in my marriage, well, early, as if to say I'd never do this now, but I would give the typical male response to Katie whenever she would express uh, an issue of concern. I would say, well, here's what you need to do, right? That's, That's classic for me. Here's what you need to do. If you're frustrated and not able to tackle all of the things that you feel like are on your platter, well, get up earlier, (laughs) Write out a detailed plan. Set goals and objectives. Write a spreadsheet. Then you won't be frustrated anymore because you'll get everything done. You're not experiencing peace in your life, is what I was saying, because you haven't done the things that guarantee that peace. You haven't done the right things to usher in God's rest. What I was saying is that Jesus' peace only comes to those who work real hard. And his rest, experiencing his rest is dependent upon our ability to do the things necessary to make that rest a reality. Again, it's taking things that are quite good. It's fine to make goals. It's fine to get up earlier. But to make those the key to peace, the key to rest, the key to getting rid of your anxiousness is sinister. Jesus' offer of peace, his promise of rest, is not validated by our efforts. He comes in the midst of life's storms. He comes in the midst of of the chaos of a home that won't stay clean. He comes in the midst of our emotional fuzziness and spiritual confusion and says, I will be with you in the midst of that, not after you get it together, not after you clean up, not after you make yourself worthy, but in the midst of it. I want to be your peace. I want to be your righteousness. The gospel is not to work up your best efforts, but it's to let go. It is to let go. It is to stop trusting yourself. It is to give up on your best efforts. All you need is nothing. All you need is nothing, but not everyone has nothing. Most people have something. Most people have lots to give. Most people say, this is why you should accept me, God, based on these things. 
And it's very subtle. You have to look. Even Peter missed it. The apostle, years after being with Jesus, he misses it. And he goes right back to slavery, Paul says. All you need is nothing. But most people don't have nothing. They have something. That's the nothing of the gospel. Let's look briefly. I promise point two is not as long as point one. The nothing of the gospel and the everything of the gospel. Paul says, you're not acting. He said that he saw that Peter was not acting in line with the gospel. You see, belief and behavior. There's the nothing, the entryway of the gospel, but there's the everything of the gospel. The behavior, how it changes your life daily. You're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Commonplace Christianity puts it this way. I got in with nothing, but now I have to build something. I got in with the nothing that I had. Jesus made the way. Now I have to make progress by keeping the law, by obeying the rules, by conforming to the culture around me. It's understandable because it's subtle. There's a lot of to-dos in the Bible. In fact, in this passage, James, Peter, and John accepted my message. They only asked that I remember the poor. You see... The gospel gets me in, but I make progress by following the rules. No. The gospel changes everything. It changes everything, not just the way you get in, but it informs your approach to God. It informs your worship of God. It informs your mission. It informs your perspective. It informs your progress. It undergirds the way that if you're a Christian, you make progress in the faith. It is through the gospel, not through the law. It's much more difficult than it sounds. As difficult as coming to God in the first place with nothing. It's just as difficult to begin to grow, to begin to care for the poor without then looking to that care as being something that makes you more righteous, more acceptable to him. You can't easily switch off that engine of self-justification that's been running in your heart since the day that you were born. It says Peter used used to eat with Gentiles. He has this amazing experience in Acts 10 that we looked at last year. He gets a vision from God, says, go to Cornelius, this centurion, this pagan, and take the good news with him, with with you to him. Let Cornelius in. And as you do, Peter, eat like they do. Throw off all of these clean laws that you've been keeping for your whole life and eat what is impure. Be one of them. Go and do ministry to him. So he goes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius has had a vision, has become a Christian. He shares table fellowship with him, with this Gentile. And by the time this first episode in Galatians that we read comes about, Peter is regularly sharing table fellowship with Gentiles. Jew and Gentile is mixing together, eating together as if it's one body, one community that the thing that binds them together is the gospel. It's the work of Jesus. And so he shares table fellowship with them. But then later, in verse 11, I think it is, when he comes to Antioch, which could be some bit of time later, what does Peter do? He has this amazing experience with Cornelius, and for years he's been practicing sharing table fellowship, giving equality to other people in the gospel. And then what does he do? He withdraws. The circumcision group, this is the, the true believers, 
These are the, the truly reformed people. They come and say, Peter, what are you doing? You're setting a bad example. You're a leader in the church, and yet you share table fellowship with these ugly, dirty pagans. And so he withdraws because he gets afraid that maybe I'm not as spiritual as them. Maybe I've given up too quickly. Maybe these things are necessary for faith. Peter, a pillar of the church, was convinced of the nothing of the gospel, but he wasn't confident in the everything of the gospel. He was convinced that it was Jesus plus nothing that gets him into the kingdom, but he wasn't confident that the approval, security, progress, richness of the gospel was everything. He got the nothing, but he didn't get the everything. And so he withdraws, and he lets other people's practices intimidate him. He slips back into the safety, into the safe confines of his own culture, and says, this is the way it's going to be. And if you want to be one of us, you better dress like us. You better look like us. You better think like us. And then you can come in. How serious of an error is this? What does Paul do? Paul comes back and has a fit. He marches up to him in front of everyone. And keep in mind, he's probably met Peter once, a long time ago. But, and Peter is the man, right? Peter was a disciple of Jesus, walked with Jesus. And in front of everyone, Paul marches up to him and says, Peter, you're a hypocrite. You're not living in line with the gospel. You're not acting in line with the gospel. In line is the Greek word orthopedeo, which from which we get our word orthopedics. That is right walking. Correct walking. Peter, you're out of line. You came in with the gospel, but buddy, you're not believing it now. You need to get in line. This is the centrality of the gospel. It informs everything you do, from your entry to your death. Everything. Everything is about the gospel. If you add to the gospel, it's not just gospel plus law. It's now nothing. No gospel at all. It's not just the way you get in. It's the way you live. And it's the way that in town, if we say we're a gospel-centered church, that's how we live. The gospel is our center. He calls these people false brethren, false believers. Not simply those who have missed something, but those who have missed everything. Everything. There were two official perfect games thrown in Major League Baseball this, this season. But most think there would have been a third by this journeyman pitcher, Armando Galarraga, for the Detroit Tigers. And he pitched his way through a perfect game into the middle of the ninth inning. Now, <clears throat> keep in mind that you can go a decade between perfect games in, in baseball. It is incredibly rare. It's facing 27 batters and getting out 27 batters in a row. No runners on base. Very rare. There was two that were pitched this last year. This would have been the third. Would have been huge history. That second batter hits a simple dribbler. No problem, right? The fielder picks it up, fires it to first base in time. But the ump calls him out. Calls him safe, sorry. 
eight and a half innings, and now the umpire says, all your work, all the cameras that have been on you, all the news programs that have cut from their regular programming to come to this, the third perfect game in one year, this historic occasion, it's blown. There's a runner on base, and you're useless. Your work is useless. You're done. But he's wrong. The umpire is wrong. And everyone on the field knows it. Everyone in the stands knows it. Everyone watching TV knows it. But he says, I was confident that I'd gotten the call right. I knew that he was out. And he runs into the dugout after the next batter comes up and hits a simple dribbler and they get everyone out. And he goes into the dugout and watches the replay. And the umps run in and they say, yeah, you know, I think he was, I think he was out, Jimmy. Life-changing. One call. Jim Joyce is a 20-year veteran. He, every right call, every split-second decision that he's made that's been validated by replay is now forgotten. It's thrown away. His career will be remembered by the one guy that blew a simple, obvious call at first base and blew this perfect game. He's now the lead story on SportsCenter, and everything about his life, which didn't matter yesterday, now matters to everyone. He actually lives here in Oregon. What do you do? You've ruined history. You've ruined one guy's attempt at baseball immortality. But in a world of denials and blame shifting, Jim Joyce, in a tearful press conference, says, I blew it. I blew the call, and I ruined this guy's chance at a perfect game. I ruined this guy's chance at history. I blew it. Jim Leland, the manager for the Detroit Tigers, comes in after the press conference with a cold beer and says, here, Jim, you know what? You're human. And then the, <clears throat> the general manager, Dave Dombrowski, visits him too, gives him a hug. And then what do you know? Galarraga, the guy who almost made history, comes in and hugs him and says, we're all human. The news coverage turns 180 degrees from an ump who blew the biggest call of his career to a guy who admits his wrong and is forgiven. So what does perfect mean to the guy who wrecked the perfect game? He says perfect means one guy was and one guy wasn't. I happen to be the guy who wasn't. But what does the word perfect mean? Sometimes the word perfect means being able to accept imperfection. Friends, Jesus is the perfect one who accepts all of your imperfection. When you admit your imperfections, you get forgiveness. When you bring nothing, you get everything. That's the gospel. The nothing and the everything of the gospel. When you're ready to say, I am not fit for the king, but he accepts me on the basis of his son, you become fit. Enter through the nothing of the gospel, but live in town, live by the everything of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as a church, we would truly get the gospel, that it would change us not from the outside in, but from the inside out, that we would become a body of people who are accepting of others, those who are different, 
that we would not become a club that is comfortable, but that we would bring those who are different here and that we would go to them because the gospel compels us. Father, help us to believe a gospel that is missional, that we cannot help but be missional people if we believe the gospel. Lord, let Jesus' work change us, inform us, make us into new people. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.